You're listening to BuddhistGeeks.com. October 15th, 2007. Episode 41, Sharon Salzberg on Now and Then. Sharon Salzberg co-founded the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts when she was 23. In this podcast, Salzberg shares some of the insights she's discovered along the way, telling stories in a way that will make them accessible to new and seasoned practitioners alike. This is part one of a three-part series. This episode of Buddhist Geeks is sponsored by the Do No Harm Movement. To find out more about the Do No Harm Movement and to receive a free Do No Harm bumper sticker and wristband, please visit www.donoharm.us. So we were just discussing, well, several things. One is living in New York City, splitting your time and traveling the the country as you do, the world as you do, and faith, the book, and the writing process of uh, getting faith published. So can you say a little bit more about the process of, like the five-year process of (laughs) getting that thing uh, on the market? (laughs) Well, the first book that I wrote was called Loving Kindness, and it was about that particular meditation um, within the Buddhist tradition. But really, I think because I started practicing within the Buddhist tradition when I was 18, that's really the language and the, the imagery and the metaphors that I use. But I think it's really a universal understanding. I wanted to write a book on loving kindness practice because I had been doing it and teaching it so much. And uh, finally I did. And then um, so a friend actually said to me, well, when your first book expresses your life's work, what comes next? So I said, I guess you go deeper. And I did within and really looked inside and tried to see what was even more fundamental to me than loving kindness and compassion practice. And I saw that that was faith. So I I decided I wanted to write a book on faith. And it wasn't a very popular concept for many reasons and, and on a lot of levels. You know, I think that the word itself put a lot of people off. And I would say to people, I'm I'm working on a book on faith, and they would be upset or amused or even angry, you know, like, what do you want to do that for? And it went through lots of transformations and, and finally took the form that it did. The concept of faith, I guess, crosses all spiritual traditions. So why would this bring up feelings of anger in people? I think people associated the word faith itself with being silenced, with not being able to ask questions, with feeling condemned because they did ask questions or they wanted to ask questions. They associated faith with dogma, blind faith, and it was something they felt they had gone beyond, you know, rather than uh, something that would enrich them in their own their own process. You've studied with Deepa Ma, and we were just talking briefly about the moment that she she said, yeah, it's time for you to, to go back to the States and teach. And uh, I just wonder about how you felt, what you thought when she said that. Were you like, all right, I'm ready to go out there? <laughs> or were you like, give me a break? <laughs> I'm ready. No, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> yes, it's going to get me to Raleigh, North Carolina someday. <laughs> no, um, I had been practicing for, I guess, about three, four years at that time. And uh, she was a very important and profound teacher for me. She uh, herself in her life had suffered quite a lot. As a Bengali woman of that time, she'd been placed into an arranged marriage when she was about 12. And unlike many of those stories, she and her husband did fall very deeply in love. 
And then it was, I think, about 18 years before she had her first child, which was it was very, very difficult in that society with those cultural norms. And, and then she had three children, two of whom died, and then her husband died very suddenly one day. I think he just came home from work. He wasn't feeling well, and within hours he died. And they were living in Burma at the time. He was in the civil service in Burma, and she was so grief-stricken, she was so overwhelmed by sorrow and pain that she actually went to bed and couldn't get out of bed. She she was just devastated. And it being Burma, when the doctor came in, which was, you know, months, a month later, he said, you're actually going to die of a broken heart if you don't do something about your suffering, something about your mind. He said, you should learn how to meditate. And so she did. She still had a daughter to raise and, you know, other reasons to, to live. And so she got out of bed and went to a, a meditation center. And they say that she was so weak from her ordeal that when she got to the retreat center, she actually had to crawl up the temple stairs in order to get to the meditation room to learn how to meditate. And, and what happened for her in that place through her practice was both a very profound peace and an extraordinary kind of compassion. You know, when I met her, I then saw her for many years and saw her with all kinds of different people. And I never saw her with anybody where she wasn't inclusive. She didn't take them in and care about them. And, and she could be fierce and strong. It wasn't all sweetness and you know, nice things, but it, it was with this kind of power of inclusion and connection. It's almost like she could look at you and know, you know, just like that siren going by, she knew that life could turn on a dime, you know, that all of our lives are very unsteady. They're very fragile. Even if we're doing fine right now, there's that insecurity, you know, and so she was such an extraordinary model for me of someone who had suffered so much and had developed this enormous compassion out of it which was very uh, important for me. So then when I went to see her in uh, 1974, I was coming back to America for what I was convinced would be a brief visit. And I would get my visa renewed and, you know, make some money and things like that, and then go back to India where I was absolutely convinced I was going to live the entire rest of my life. And so I went to see her to get her blessing and say goodbye just for what I was sure was this brief visit. And she said to me, when you go back to the States, you'll be teaching. You'll be teaching with Joseph Goldstein. And I said, no, I won't. And she said, yes, you will. And I said, no, I won't. And she said, yes, you will. And I said, no, I won't. And she looked at me and she said two things which were amazing. One was, you really understand suffering. That's why you should teach. And the other was, you can do anything you want to do. It's only your thinking that you can't do it that's going to stop you. So that was my blessing. That was my goodbye. And I, I went off, came back to the States and sure enough, began teaching with Joseph. <laughs> but I never had that sense of, oh, this is now my life. You know, I, I thought, I'll just do this for six more months <laughs> and then I'll go back to India and, you know, I'll do it for another year maybe. And then I'll go back to India. And one day, years later, I thought, oh, <laughs> actually, I'm not going back, am I? I mean, I've gone back many times since, but I realized, oh, I live here now. This is This is going to be it. You were so young when you started teaching, and I'm sure you've been asked this question before, but, and it, actually when I spoke to Ethan Nickturn, he said that he relayed a story about the Cosbys, the youngest daughter, Rudy, uh, goes to her first day of fifth grade, and she hates it. So she comes home, and she's like, I'm quitting school, and her older sister says, 
uh, if you quit school, Rudy, what are you going to do? And she was like, I'm going to teach third grade. <laughs> and so Ethan said, basically, you know, you got to stay one step ahead of whatever, whatever you're teaching or whoever you're teaching. And I just thought it was like a, a pretty awesome metaphor for uh, what a teacher does. Um, a teacher isn't, you know, an all knowing, all powerful, but they, um, you know, maybe they stay a grade ahead of you. Yeah, I think a grade ahead is good. Two grades is probably better, <laughs> you know. Well, you know, in, in uh, the tradition of Buddhism that I mostly have trained in, in Theravada Buddhism, found in Southeast Asia largely, or preserved in Southeast Asia, the word for teacher is Kalyanamita, which means spiritual friend. And that's very much the understanding that, that a teacher is like a spiritual friend. And there needs to be some grounding and a body of knowledge so that one is really able to try to help people. and. I wouldn't have said it, you know, I guess I was 21 when I started teaching. I was 23 when we started IMS, the Insight Meditation Society. I would never have said, I'm ready, <laughs> you know, but circumstances or conditions came together in such a way that it was helping people. I could see that it helped me enormously, the practice or the, the practices, both the life practices and, you know, like generosity and morality and the, the worldview and, and the actual literal practices of mindfulness and, and loving kindness and compassion, I felt would have really saved my life. And I feel like I was lucky in that when I began teaching, it was really, you know, with Joseph Goldstein and people like Jack Cornfield. And so we had ways of supporting one another. And if somebody's intention or motivation got a little funny, someone else was there to point it out. So that actually, that was one question that one of the other Buddhist geeks had for you was, you know, your experience starting out as a teacher when you were so young. You were at Naropa, right? Yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience. Did you did you study Shambhala Buddhism? I mean, did, did you study with Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche at all? No? Okay. So uh, just... How did you end up at Naropa? <laughs> yeah, how did you end up at Naropa? Well, our, our joke actually is that of this community of very good friends who had all met in India and practiced together. Joseph was the first one to come back and have a job and an apartment. So we all moved in, which is actually completely true. Um, this was the very first summer of Naropa Institute. It was, it was the beginning. And uh, Trungpa Rinpoche was there. Ramdas was there. They were each teaching these mega classes of like a thousand people. And Ramdas, who was a friend from India, had run into Joseph somewhere and had invited him to come and teach the meditation subgroup of the class. So Joseph said yes, and he was there and he had a job in an apartment. So when I got back from India, which was the beginning of the Naropa opening, the first session, and by the time I got to Colorado, it was two weeks before the close of that first session. And I think eight of us moved into Joseph's one bedroom apartment. <laughs> and he was so popular that he was asked to stay on and teach the second session. So he asked me to stay and, and to help him. Um, and Jack Cornfield was also teaching it in Naropa for that first session. So that's when the three of us really, really bonded. So you've seen, you know, Buddhism evolve in the West. I mean, you've kind of watched, watched it change so much in 30 years. What are the biggest surprises or, you know, changes that have happened? And what do you, are, are you anticipating anything for the next 30? Or for, like for my generation, what are we, what should we be looking out for? <laughs> The next 30 years. Well, I mean, in a way, one could also make a distinction between Buddhism and me and the meditation practices, you know. And so uh, that's been a surprise that that distinction could really be made. Although 
Goenka was my first meditation teacher in India in January of 1971. I did my first retreat with him. And he said over and over again something I think is actually true, which is that the Buddha did not teach Buddhism. The Buddha taught a way of life. And so he, he very much took took away the sectarian edge and the identification and, and the thought, well, I, I am a Buddhist, you know, and really focused attention, as I think it should be, on the development of the practice, because that is is what transforms one, not another identification. In that sense, I think what's happening here is actually quite close to the spirit of the original teachings of the Buddha. I mean, I'm amazed, you know, when I look around and see, well, here, you know, uh, at Duke, there are a couple of research projects on loving kindness and loving kindness meditation and chronic pain. And there are movements to bring mindfulness meditation, certainly because of the, you know, really pioneering work of someone like John Kabat-Zinn into all kinds of medical health settings, now educational settings. There's there was an article in the New York Times a couple of months ago about mindfulness in the classroom. And I had two favorite lines from the article. One was from a, a teacher or an administrator who said something like, all day long we tell these kids to pay attention, but we never tell them how. And the other was from a kid, which I don't, I don't think the article anywhere said how old he was, which, which would have been good to know. But I guess he was asked what mindfulness means. And he said, mindfulness means not hitting someone in the mouth. And that's actually my new favorite definition of mindfulness. It means not hitting someone in the mouth. And I thought that implies a lot. You know, it implies like knowing what you're feeling, that you're angry, not 10 consequential actions later, but right when it's arising, being able to tolerate it, to bear it, to let it go, to make another choice, to have some space. I thought that's a pretty good definition, you know. So so to see sort of how practices like certainly mindfulness and even now loving kindness meditation are entering uh, more the secular arena, uh, medicine, health, education, and and being utilized is it's a big surprise and is tremendously gratifying, actually, because it's for the benefit of people. And I'm, you know, of the generation where when I got back from India in the mid-70s and I would be at some social situation a party or something, and somebody would say to me, well, what do you do? And I'd say, I teach meditation. And they would kind of look at me like, whoa, that's weird. <laughs> you know, and they'd sort of sidle away like, that is so weird. You know, but now even like I can remember going through customs, you know, logical place where somebody would say like, what do you do? And I said, I teach meditation. The person tends to either say, I'm so stressed out. I could really <laughs> use you. Or my favorite is actually my partner's so stressed <laughs> out. They could really use you. <laughs> You know, it's just like a different world. This has been a presentation of BuddhistGeeks.com, copyright 2007. Music in this podcast provided by c for chaos For more great music and writing, visit his blog at www.c4chaos.com. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, 
self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.